you know, society, they like the way this guy makes ice cream, but the other guy, they don't like his ice cream that much, and they don't buy it, so it uh, fades out. What's that? Supply and demand. Free enterprise. Competition. The profit bonus. Down on the economy, stupid. Where is it? From everywhere, everywhere. Hello and welcome, it is new episode of Everyday Economics, hosted by Justin LaRue, Lanny Zrill, and Grégoire Maillard. In the news today, we're going back to the basics because Lanny will talk about the NHL and Justin about the video game industry. After that, we're going back to the main topic of the day, which is about game theory. And finally, Osgur, one of our listeners, contacted us and we will answer to his voice message. As a reminder, if you want to participate in the following episode by reacting about something we said, or if you want to talk about a specific topic, please send us a voice message on Instagram or by Messenger, or simply by email, and you may be in the next episode. And before starting this episode, if you want to support us, you can give us 5 stars on Apple Podcasts, and it would be much appreciated. Alright, so Lanny, I really want to hear your hockey story. Okay, well, uh, thanks guys. So I, I'm sort of happy today to be talking about hockey, although it's not a very positive uh, development that's happened with the National Hockey League. Uh, so, you know, for those of you who don't follow the sport, um, of course, because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the National Hockey League has not been having any spectators in their arena uh, to watch the games. And, you know, so over the summer, they had a tournament that was held both in Edmonton and in Toronto, and no spectators were allowed. And this was really just a way to finish off last season. The whole bubbles uh, just, thing, right? Yeah, the bubbles, exactly, right? So it was a closed system where even the employees at the hotel were within this closed system. And uh, it really was uh, very secure. There was no uh, COVID cases whatsoever over the course of two months. Uh, they managed to play the Stanley Cup tournament and the Stanley Cup was awarded uh, without really any problem. Um, you know, the impetus for doing that tournament was really there was obligations that the National Hockey League had to uh, the broadcasters, essentially, to finish off the season. Otherwise, they would have had to pay back lots of money. And so there was really like a, a strong incentive for them to come back and do this uh, in any possible way. Um, now, going forward, things are a bit different because now the National Hockey League is trying to decide... Uh, what do we want to do about next season? So how are we going to organize it? Do we want to organize it in bubbles? Uh, do we want to have the teams play in their own arenas and move around like they're doing with uh, the National Football League and they were doing with Major League Baseball? Um, but one of the problems the National Hockey League is encountering is that uh, the National Hockey League still does not plan to have any spectators, even though it is allowed in some jurisdictions. And this is a huge problem for the National Hockey League, even bigger than it is for other leagues. Uh, and the reason is, is that most of the revenue uh, for the National Hockey League is generated by people buying tickets to see the event. Um, and this is very different than the National Football League or the National Basketball Association, who have massive television contracts. So uh, actually the joke, which is not a joke, it's actually true, is that the in the National Football League, every single team makes a profit before a single fan even steps into the stadium. Uh, that's how lucrative their broadcasting deal is, and the NHL just has nothing even close to this. Uh, without the ability to generate revenue through ticket sales, a lot of these teams are possibly in big trouble because they're still obligated to pay the, uh, the players according to a, an agreement that they made in advance of the Stanley Cup playoffs in July. And that agreement essentially said 
the players were going to agree to um, a reduction in their salaries, but the reduction isn't a true reduction. It's just uh, holding a portion of their salaries in escrow. So really what the players agreed to is we're going to receive our full salary, except 30% of that salary, uh, or roughly that, is going to be held in escrow in case we don't make enough revenue. So they're still getting paid 70% of their salary. The difficulty is, is that still might be too expensive for the teams, right, that have to operate without putting fans in the arena. And so the debate that's going on within the walls of the Board of Governors for the National Hockey League is, should we even have a season at all? And the reason that this is an interesting topic for this podcast, and not just for me, the hockey fan, uh, is because this goes back to uh, something that we talked about um, when we were talking about the decision-making of firms about whether to operate or whether to shut down. Exactly. Uh, and so in this case, you know, what some of the NHL teams are arguing is that given that we have to pay these guys 70% of their salaries and we can't collect any ticket revenue and we have this feeble broadcasting agreement, maybe we should just sit this season out. It's not worth it. We're going to lose more money this season uh, than we would if we just shut down and paid our fixed costs. So it's actually a really clear example of this, you know, short run shutdown example that you maybe have seen in your introductory microeconomics courses. Uh, and it's really playing out before our eyes right now. Well, that's exactly right. That's because, you know, that that 70 percent that you have to pay the, the players is is a sunk cost. Right. And so you what you have to worry about is whether by opening you can make more than your operating costs. And that's not well, clear. So, so. So, in fact, I think if they don't play. They don't have to pay that seventy oh. percent. Oh wow! So they just that... have to pay the, you know, the the fixed costs would be like the maintaining their facilities, um, and so I don't think they have to pay well, the players. Well, that's a no-brainer then. I mean, you really don't want to if you can recuperate that that salary, the, the the player's salary, then there's really no no incentive to to open if you can't get the tickets. Well, so so actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because the commissioner of the National Hockey League, Gary Bettman, has been arguing that in fact this would be disastrous. Um, and Gary Bettman's argument is based on two events that have happened in the past. One of them was a strike in Major League Baseball in 1994. Um, this is particularly close to us broadcasting from Montreal, because in 1994, uh, the day of the strike, the Montreal Expos were the best team in baseball. And, you know, we're a competitor for winning the World Series. Um, so as an, also an Expos fan, I'm a bit traumatized by this event. But for the purpose of this podcast, the reason this is interesting is that missing the World Series that year had a tremendously negative financial impact on Major League Baseball. It took them almost five years to recover from the losses as a result of essentially the, the confidence uh, hit that they took from this strike. Um, so and confidence then, from and whom? Then, can you, could you can clarify this? So is it Confidence the case, from the consumers. So is it the case that the, the people, the spectators, were just less excited about baseball for a number of years after that because they were, Absolutely. They were kind of weaned away from baseball? So I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure what is the the behavioral mechanism here. Um, I think some of it is just, you know, discouragement that, you know, baseball has or sports, you know, have this sort of escapist uh, sort of thing and this, you know, very real labor dispute entered into baseball. And I think it just turned some people off. You know, if we're not going to award a champion, what's the point of spending my afternoons watching this stuff? And so that's what I mean by confidence, right? Like you have this sense as a spectator that you invest your time and your money into a team and you get to see how it plays out. And so, you know, actually I can explain my own situation. I was in Montreal that summer in 1994. I was taking the Metro every evening I could to Olympic Stadium to see the games being played. 
Uh, I invested a ton of time and energy and emotion in this team and was so let down by the cancellation of the season that I probably never was the same baseball fan since. And even though the Expos didn't leave Montreal until 2005, I probably wasn't the same fan afterwards. And it affected permanently my fandom of baseball. And the same thing happened for, for the NHL. They lost an entire season in 2005, and it was also a financial disaster. And so what the commissioner of the National Hockey League is saying is like, look, guys, this is very short-sighted thinking. Clearly, it's better for us to shut down in the short run uh, because, you know, we're going to lose a ton of money if we operate without fans. But in the long run, this is going to really take a huge chunk out of our fan base, kill any momentum that we may have, uh, you know, generated through having this, you know, uh, tournament in the bubble in the summer. And so it would be a huge mistake if we were to shut down. We should do it no matter how much it costs because, you know, we can continue to build our brand and eventually we'll be back to normal, stronger than ever. Yeah, I agree with everything except for the no matter how much it costs because yeah. <laughs> you can never make a decision no matter how much it costs. That's that just, sounds right. That's, that's very just the kind of speak that we don't accept in, this, uh, in these walls. But, but I understand <laughs> what you mean. It makes sense. So the long run, the long run considerations really would outweigh the short run losses. I, that, that makes sense. And then then it's a matter of speculation as to whether that would be the case. But, but it's, a, it's absolutely sorry again, Justin. I'm very excited. I like this topic. So <laughs> that's I, good. I'm, I'm jumping in. But but actually, there's another example of this that happened that is less sports related, um, which was in, in 2008, uh, during the uh, following the financial crisis, a lot of firms were uh, having financial difficulties. And, you know, one of the things that you can do if you're a firm who's suffering financially is to try to cut back on your expenses, particularly um, the expenses around uh, your labor costs. So one thing that you could imagine doing is to, you know, like fire some people or lay off some people, um, you know, in the short term. But firms were very reluctant to do this in 2008, partly because as soon as you let go your good employees, right, um, when you need to start ramping up again, it's hard to get them back. And especially if they have firm-specific capital, uh, human capital, that is, you don't want to lose that. And so some firms were operating you know, with employees who weren't doing much for you know, a year, two years, just so they could maintain those employees so that they were there when demand picked up again. So I think that you know, even though in our courses you know, we teach, right, let's view these um, decisions in isolation. In reality, when you're trying to think about this short-run shutdown decision, you also have to consider the long-run effects of, you know, skipping a year or, or whatever. And, and so I think that, you know, the hockey, you know, really lays this stuff bare. But I think that firms are facing these types of trade-offs all the time in reality. Yeah, but I think that I think the hockey, the difference with hockey is is much. So the hockey case is much different than the other one. The, because the hockey case is really going to be a, have, have an impact on demand. Whereas if you think about these firms that are really keeping these employees around, is because there is a there is a reopening cost, if you will, or, or cost of re-expanding, which is really on the supply side. Uh, I think there's there's kind of this distinction there. But, but I agree with you that in both cases, you have to think about the, the longer run, maybe not the long run, but the longer run than just the immediate uh, period, for sure. Also, I was wondering about your uh, NHL uh, example. Um, is there any risk uh, about operating at loss uh, for that season? Because so maybe they are going to have less money for the next season, and so they, maybe they could do uh, less investment, so they couldn't they could buy like less players and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so like operating this season, maybe it would uh, decrease the quality of the next seasons, the future seasons. Um, so, so actually, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, the teams have virtually no flexibility 
around their expenses. Uh, most of the players had contracts that were, you know, you know, like had went through the next season. And so there was no, I mean, there are mechanisms to make adjustments, uh, but actually the NHL decided that they wouldn't allow for teams to have um, sort of ways out, like buying out contracts for less than their value and things like that, um, kind of to protect against, you know, taking on extra expenses. Um, so, you know, there were some mechanisms potentially for this, but ultimately, you know, people weren't using them. The league didn't allow for many of these mechanisms to be used. And uh, so they are really committed to the majority of players. Um, now, there was a sort of free agency market that took place in the middle of October. And, you know, the contracts that were given out were, were kind of unique. Like there definitely was a financial impact that, you know, caused, um, you know, less money to be given out, different types of contracts that were more flexible, contracts that were um, heavily backloaded. So if you signed a contract for two years, your first year salary might be a million and your second year salary might be five million um, because they expect the revenue to be higher in the second year and, and easier to pay. So there was a little bit of flexibility for, you know, the maybe 10 percent of players who had expiring contracts, but most of them were locked in. So uh, so that is difficult. From my understanding is that they can um, if they're if they shut down, then they don't have to pay the players. Right. Could they simply play with three-fourths of the player and try to make some savings that way and say, look, I'm not going to play you guys for the entire year. I'm assuming there was be, this would be followed by a strike or anything, something like that. But I mean, is that legally, is that something that could happen? So, so they can negotiate that. So the, the collective bargaining agreement that the players have um, with the league um, could be renegotiated uh, to allow for a reduction in the number of players on the roster. Um, but this is you know, kind of what I said is that there didn't seem to be any willingness from even the league's perspective to allow for ways out of these obligations because, you know, you would have to honor those contracts in some sense. Okay. So what is your prognosis, Alani? Are we going to have an NHL season this year or? I don't know. I mean, the this was just the economics-y thing about it. The The more difficult problem really is practical because you have seven teams in Canada and at the moment a 14-day quarantine when you cross the border. And so one of the things they've been talking about is having a Canadian division where the seven Canadian teams would just play each other all season, you know, so the Canucks can play the Maple Leafs 10 times, <laughs> um, which I guess is good. I don't know. Uh, it's better for me in the time zone anyway. Um, so I think that there are a lot more complications just beyond this, but you know, there are some owners who are really hurting. Um, the story that everyone likes to tell is the Dallas stars owner. Um, so he, his name is, um, I mean, so he's, he's actually a person from Vancouver and he's the owner of the Sandman hotel chain. And so his entire, uh, fortune is built off of the hospitality industry, which has been decimated. So like, here's a guy who is suffering magnificently in his core business. And now the National Hockey League is going to tell him, okay, now take this extra loss, please. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it really, it, it's, it's unclear, you know, how many, um, how many of the owners are in this position where their core business is suffering significantly um, and can't afford to take uh, another hit like this. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't feel tremendously optimistic, but I, I do think that, you know, the league has learned from the past. I think the the lost season in 2005 was tremendously damaging to their brand. Um, for example, they lost their relationship with ESPN, which is the biggest sports broadcaster in the United States as a result of that lockout. Um, and, you know, they haven't really recovered from that loss of exposure in the United States. So I, I think that they're worried about the long-term consequences. So I don't know. Is it a coin flip right now? Maybe. Cool. Thanks for indulging me, guys. 
No problem. I think uh, one aspect of, of your hockey story is very much related to what I would like to talk about. You know, this the fact that, you know, you said you were no longer the same fan after you realize, after you, you were kind of burnt by this, uh, this season not ending or the psychological concern that if there is a, a shutdown, then people are going to realize that there's actually a lot of businessy stuff going on in the background and that they don't want to see that. They just want to, people just want to enjoy the sports, they enjoy the rivalry, enjoy the hockey and the escapism that goes with it. And that seeing the, uh, the other side of things is uh, kind of pulling them back into reality. And, and, and that's something they're trying to escape from. And what I want to talk about is, uh, is related to, to that. It's in the, the video game industry. Uh, again, this is, a, this is a topic I, I love to talk about. And just recently, the, um, the, this very much anticipated game called Cyberpunk 2077 was delayed again. It was delayed for three weeks. Three weeks may or may not be a long time for you. Uh, I think it's not a long time for me either. But nevertheless, the, I, I guess, gaming, internet gaming community or basically a bunch of people on the internet started, you know, freaking out about this. Like it's a scandal and, uh, and starting sending death threats to the, uh, to the developers themselves. The people who are actually making the game that's supposed to come out, they're, they're, they're sending death threats to that. And, but I think the, the main thing is that this has reignited a debate about what's called crunch in the video game industry. So I don't know if you're aware, but this, uh, this concept of crunch has been around for a long time. It's, um, it's the fact that when a game is almost completed, a game is almost finished, then, you know, there's all these last minute things that need to be done. And it takes a huge amount of manpower and the employees, the developers are asked to work hundred hour weeks. And, uh, and the, the company that, so major every most companies most big companies do it in fact most and i think it's not a coincidence most companies that are publicly traded do that and so uh, cd project red which is the uh, developer of cyberpunk 2077 which is also well known for the witcher one two and three most specifically they um they're well known for making their employees crunch out the last uh periods and um and the you know this They've they've told the the employers said, sorry they've told the um, the developers saying look you're not going to be with your family very much and uh, for the next few weeks and you know we're, we're sorry but you know we, they actually wrote the families saying that their 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 husband or wives are not going to be around on the on the family front and that they should be understanding <laughs> of that and then the, the reason it sparked a debate is because when they then talked to the stakeholders sorry the shareholders they said yeah uh, oh, well you know the crunch is not that bad and don't worry about it so the whole debate about whether crunch is a bad thing or not has has been reignited and um it's it's just a three-week delay i mean that's kind of the problem this is what really blows my mind and there are death threats sent over that um i would like to know what you guys think you know from who are not following this industry very closely from an economic standpoint what's uh what's your reflex when you hear that story uh, I'm not sure about uh, how productive it is to to rush things because I, I guess if you put too much pressure on well, on those workers, uh, they may get less creative. Then they can make uh, because they are doing overtime. They're doing uh, uh, six days uh, uh, job per week. Uh, I think you mean they're... seven because it's really seven. Oh, that's seven. <laughs> I, I, read I mean, hundred hour week, hundred hour weeks. <laughs> I don't know how you can fit that in six days. It's <laughs> well, really really the... tough. But yeah, yeah, uh, I, I guess it's less pro less creative, uh, less productive, and also maybe uh, because they're so tired, they're doing more bugs, and so they, they have to spend more time uh, uh, correcting it. And and so in the end, I, I I don't see the point to to rush things. 
Yeah, and so actually, that's something I didn't mention is that a lot of these a lot of these uh, workers are burnt out. I mean, literally, and so it's really affecting their health, physical health, mental health. There's um, there's kind of the short run, long run also distinction. Whereas where where people are, um, they just leave the industry because they're just sick of it. And then so you have all these talented people who just end up doing something else. And there's a huge turnover in the industry where uh, where the uh, you know the younger young hungry uh, hungry people just come in there and work as much as they can. And then uh, but. But then the old talent who has a lot of experience doesn't stick around for very long. And that's that's an issue. In the long run, if you want to make better games, you better take care of your employees. And that's just from an, a bottom line perspective. I'm not even talking about worrying about your, their health. Or, but even if you're not a decent human being and you just want to squeeze the most out of the uh, of your employees, you might as, it's better to get to get the long run uh, Think about the long run as well, but of course, as we know, you know these uh, these companies are focused on the short run gains and short run growth. And this is something I've talked about already on this podcast. You know, the fact that they're aiming for growth, even though they're already very big, that means they have to cut costs somewhere, and that's usually in making people work more. And do you know if they have like premium for those special weeks, or is it like just the uh, the regular? Uh, well, I mean, they're uh, paid. They're paid for the time that they work. At least I hope so. Mm. But still, it's uh, <laughs> overall, it's still. If if some some of them for sure, if they had the choice to to just work less, and then they would do it. It's just that there's so much pressure to do so. And mm. I think there's the illusion of choice sometimes, where your employer will tell you, like, you don't have to work so much. But then they they know very well that on the next project they're not going to be chosen if they don't display. What, what occurred to me is is that like maybe this is just uh, you know an accounting exercise in, in the sense that if you're a video game developer right there's probably like a certain number of video games you need to produce per year uh, or I know they take much longer than that so let's just say you need to put out uh, you know a new version of a video game every four years three years yeah, okay. three four years. years okay four years whatever you want to choose so I guess what I'm thinking is that like if you uh, make that five years well now that's the same amount of revenue spread over five years instead of spread over four years and of course the expenses of five years spread over uh, expenses of five years instead of the expenses of four years and so you can see that at some point this becomes unsustainable so maybe this is just the necessary balance which is the games have to come out every four years so it, we require having these deadlines that creates these crunches and these are the only this is the number of employees we can have otherwise we're just not profitable and so maybe it, it is a sort of necessarily uh, like suboptimal working environment in order for the company to be uh, functional. Well, I completely agree with the the cost benefit analysis that you're making. You know, the fact that yes, you have to that revenue is going is only going to to allow you to pay your employee for so such a given period of time. So you know, let's say it's four years. But I mean, there's also the way the the work is managed. I mean, if you um, if you have to, we all tell our students that you know, if you have to cram for exams in the last week, that means you haven't managed your time properly. Okay, so that's that's because you haven't been. So you, I don't know what you've been doing for the. And I know that the the creation phase and the planning phase, and there's so many things going on in the early phases of a video game development. But if you have to crunch, it means that there's something going on in the in the management of uh, of your time that that could be addressed that way without making the time longer necessarily, but just doing it in a in a more I guess smoother fashion over the over time. Well, so I certainly hope you're right. I guess I just worry, and, and to connect this back to something that we we had talked about uh, earlier on an earlier podcast that's also in the news this week, which is you know the ruling in in California, the vote in California 
that uh, maintained the independent contractor status for uh, Uber drivers, for example, right? So, I mean, Uber's argument essentially was we can't operate if we have to take these people on as employees. And so if we want Uber to exist, right, we have to have the, uh, the drivers be independent contractors. And so I guess like, well, I, I see what you're saying, which is maybe we can reorganize uh, the, uh, the, the way in which people are working. I certainly hope they can. I mean, if, you know, you have people working a hundred hour weeks at the end, presumably you can just spread a little bit of that over the previous three and a half years. Um, so I hope you're right. But then I also do wonder to what extent this is just the only financially feasible model. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a lot, a lot going on as well. And I, I know that internally there are, you know, there's what the the developers want to do. There's what the PR people are announcing to the world. It's going to be in the game. You know the types of bullet point checklist of uh, oh, we're going to have this uh, real time environment and real whatever. So a whole bunch of asp features of the game that they promise to the population, uh, to the to the players, and then development behind is going to have to to try to make that happen. And sometimes developers try some things and they think it's pretty cool, but then you have the uh, the uh, corporate saying well no we don't want that feature or whatever so and there's, there's a lot of internal in, internal um not just politics there's a lot of, just a lot of internal uh, debates and struggles going on in, in in these companies so i can completely understand that they're not they're not set on that they don't know from the get-go how things are going to play out and that you know things unravel towards the end i can completely understand that but whether it's the only sustainable and so this i'm, I'm going to be quoting jim sterling on this is one of the pundits that i follow but if if you can't make a game without uh without hurting the health of your employees well maybe that game wasn't worth making or not making with these specific features you know we the problem is that on the other hand you have these uh the, the gamer community which is not a nice group you know not at all they're just about as the uh just about as evil as the as, as the I guess the corporate magnets as the way you can imagine. They want the people, the developers, to work as hard as they can so that they can get their pretty game come out, you know, just at the right time and not have a three week delay. And I think that's sad. And uh, I really, I really, I mean, I love video games, but I really don't feel like I'm, I don't associate with that that crowd. It's uh, something something should definitely could definitely be fixed. And I don't know exactly how. So it reminds me a lot of the situation um, that, that I was in waiting for my favorite band to release a new album. Tool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they, there was a 13-year gap between uh, their last two albums, um, which was a massive gap. And during that time, they were getting a ton of criticism and I don't know about death threats, but they were definitely facing a ton of pressure. Um, only one of them has a, it faces the public. And so he took all of it, um, which is wild, uh, because it, he turns out he's not even a primary member of the band. Um, but he he was the most public one, and so that everyone just harassed him for 13 years. Um, and, but at the end of the day, I mean, people bought it. People, it was the most, you know, no one knew who the band was, but all of a sudden this band tool, a bunch of old dudes, was the number one selling album. They beat Taylor Swift. Uh, and people were losing their minds because nobody knew who they were. Uh, and so, you know, even after 13 years of them, like, putting it off and putting it off and, like, never really announcing when there would be an album until there literally was one, uh, people couldn't wait to buy it. And, you know, like, throwing money at them, which, you know, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to say I, I did. And I bought 
like the, the well, I don't see what the limited edition. I don't see what the problem is, especially if you're not part of the people harassing him, him unless you were. But were you one that <laughs> well, harassed? So I mean, this is a, no, no, I'm not a harasser, but I, so it is. It's bad behavior, but I guess at the end of the day, right? Like the you know, even though people have this negative attitude, it's just noise, right? And so people can you know shut off the Twitter machine and just you know the company doesn't have to listen to this. They can just wait three weeks and then make their fortune. Yeah, well, I mean the. That's the whole problem with Twitter is that uh, developers themselves, you know, creative creative directors, that have Twitter accounts and they're receiving these these threats directly, and so it, it's a, it's an issue. And so it, I think this rounds out the uh, the whole toxic environment uh, news about toxic environment in the video game industry that we've heard about this year. You know, this whole summer with Ubisoft and uh, and the harassment uh, cases, and and so some people say that these these companies should be boycotted, the games should be boycotted. And, and in fact, there's always, every time something like that happens, there's always a, a group of, uh, of people who, are, who, will def, who will promise that they will boycott this. And, and, but you, can, you know, in the end, you know, you're able to link whether through their accounts, whether they've actually bought the games and they're, you know, it, they just don't hold out. They always, always buy the game. So I don't think boycotting is the solution anyway, but it's an industry that is, uh, I think is, is in crisis and needs to find its way in the there aren't any labor laws, uh, so to speak. You know, there aren't any, um, and I'm not saying that's the answer um, to have unions in these uh, in this industry, but there's definitely it's it's definitely the wild wild west right now. Well, so you brought up an interesting thing about unions, right? Because that actually could uh, solve um, you know like the problem that I was talking about about the time frame, right? So if you had a union for all video game developers. Right. This would apply across the entire market. And let's just say that, like, logistically, it was possible okay. to, like, have a union like this. I know across borders, well, different regulations. I mean, practically well, that's fine. very let's just difficult. Do a thought experiment here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So imagine that you could do this. Right. Well, then, you know, suddenly the, you know, financial, like the fundamentals of the industry would change where maybe, you know, you could afford to develop a game over the course of six years now. Because the new equilibrium with pricing might cause prices to be higher, right? So by affecting, you know, one of the inputs across the board, right, you might be able to affect the pricing as well. And maybe you can create this sort of stable equilibrium where the firms are making a certain amount of money, the employees are working a reasonable amount of time, you know, and everybody is benefiting. Whereas, you know, I, I think you've said this a lot over the course of the last few months, right? Firms are so hyper-focused on growth, right, that they're going to pursue that, you know, almost without regard for anything else. And if you can throw uh, unions as like a wrench into this machine, maybe you can sort of slow down that pursuit, at least along one dimension. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think the main counter argument that that they will come up with is that uh, it's a creative process, and so you can't really, you know, set the clock on that. And and so I, I'm I, I do think that the direction that the industry is taking, I don't know how long it's going to take, but there are going to be unions at some point. That would be my my guess. But but I do think that the counter argument is that this is a creative process, and therefore it's uh, it's going to difficult to to put clear boundaries on that from a legal perspective. So that that would be my my understanding of that situation. Yeah, well, and actually, this is an excellent point that you bring up because we have a little bit of this problem in academia, right? You know, you you have this notion, right, that people work a certain amount per week. But then, of course, you know, you see your colleague, he's working 50 hours a week, and suddenly it's a, it's a bit of shame that you're not working quite as much as him, and pretty soon everyone's in the office, you know, until late at night. Now, in less, you know, 
like in, in better cultured offices, this doesn't happen. But, you know, it's quite famous, right, at the higher levels of academia that you'll have all these young professors staying, you know, until two in the morning every night working like crazy because they're in this, you know, arms race to get to the top. And it is true, right? Like you could put in regulations, but then someone's going to say, you know what, I feel like working a little bit later. And then all of a sudden it's going to be like, well, how come you can't be more like him? And pretty soon you're, you're back well, that's, to square one. Absolutely. And then to go back to, to CD Projekt Red, which was the company that, again, the company behind uh, Cyberpunk 2077, what they're saying is that, you know, when they hire people, they tell them, they, you know, you, you know what you're getting yourself into. You know, we, we're hiring people who want to work hard and there's going to be crunch and there's going to be all that stuff. But, you know, in the end, is that something sustainable over an entire career? Is that something uh, that's worth if it is affecting your mental health, or is that something worth it? I mean, it's you're, you're making games, you know, for crying out loud. You're not. Uh, there was this Twitter this guy on Twitter says, you know, I'm a firefighter and I do 24 hour shifts and I know what I'm getting myself into. Yeah, but firefighters they save lives, and maybe if that's the only way to uh, to have an efficient way to work is to have 24 hour shifts and and you know more power to you to you and uh, and thank you for doing that work but people who are making games and they're not they don't get to see their you know, children grow up i mean that's that's not it's it's not a life or death situation here for for the, the output but also just in the your, your crunching story makes me think about a, a similar but opposite story about uh, microsoft uh, microsoft uh, tested uh, a four four days uh, work week uh, in its japan offices uh, last year i guess and uh, and the re- in japan yeah yeah so wow. that's even crazier yeah. and uh, and the result was that uh, the, the employee was not only happier but also way more productive uh, they observed that the pro- productivity increased by uh, 40% and also yeah. uh, there were a lot of uh, 40% 40% yeah and, and there were a lot of uh, cost reduction because uh, because employees took uh, 25 less percent uh, time off less time off and mm-hmm. also the electricity was used uh, way less because they were one day less in the office and also they I don't know why but they printed le- way less uh, paper for the for the job and so in the in the end uh, everyone was more productive there were less cost and they were only working four days per week. Exactly. And that's not the only study. There's been a, a whole wave of studies, uh, I think one in Denmark. And, and so it, mm. the four hour, sorry, I shouldn't say four hour work week. That's kind of, that's not enough. <laughs> but the four day work week so lucky. is definitely getting a lot of traction. And uh, and uh, I can I can see it. I mean, I can definitely see why it would be more productive overall. And so maybe in the end, uh, maybe if the video game industry was working four days per week, they will already yeah, have finished the game. If people are working four days per week, they're playing through more games. <laughs> over time and so they need more 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 games to satisfy their hunger and so no nah, that's true <laughs> i love that the the general equilibrium effect <laughs> exactly <laughs> So the topic of the day is game theory or also we could say um strategic interactions you know economics and economists are you know usually um criticized for we're saying that people should do what's best for them and that that's going to lead to the best outcome overall. There's actually quite a few situations where it's not the case. And uh, you know, everybody's probably heard of situations where it is not the case because of what's called strategic interaction or collective behavior. So does the prisoner's dilemma ring a bell for any one of you? Certainly. I teach it every year. <laughs> uh, and I would argue that the prisoner's dilemma is one of the most important contributions uh, from the field of economics. It's a very simple example to illustrate uh, a really important concept in our society, uh, which is that, you know, very often for our society to be successful uh, as a group, as a whole, uh, it requires individuals to take 
small uh, actions uh, that are costly to themselves. And when people don't take these, you know, small actions, we can often end up with outcomes that, you know, are bad for everyone. And so what would be an example here? So I think the, the you know, at least the simplest example, the one I often start with is littering, right? So let's say... Like when I send letters to my family or... No, no, littering as in throwing garbage wow. on the ground. <laughs> are you still sending letters to your family? <laughs> No, you're right. You're right. a very outdated reference. That's true. Uh, so, you know, imagine it's a sunny... Uh, no, but, but I, I got to say, if we're talking, the reason I made this joke is because uh, I went to, to England when I was a kid, like I was young. And, and um, there was, so I spoke English already pretty well, but there's this one kid and he saw, he saw a thing said said like a, like a trash can and said litter and he actually mailed the letter <laughs> in there. Oh, no so, way. Yeah, so that's, that's why it stuck with me. So <laughs> okay. I know it's completely outdated then. Shows my age. Well, it's fair enough. I've already had several embarrassing moments in French, so I, I definitely understand this. Um, anyway, so what I was I was thinking about was, you know, imagine that it's a Saturday afternoon. You're sitting on the slopes of uh, Mount Royal in the sun and uh, enjoying a nice day, and you know, maybe you're uh, you know drinking a, a you know a bottle of water or something. You finish your bottle of water, and now you have to decide. Okay, um, I'm going to get up. Uh, from my nice comfortable spot, walk over to that recycling container and, you know, put away my bottle of water or am I just going to leave it here uh, and, you know, for someone else to pick up. And, you know, this is a situation where, uh, you know, it's a cost to you to have to get up and march over to the recycling bin uh, in order to throw away your own bottle of water versus just leaving it there. So this is a small cost that you would have to bear. And certainly if you were trying to think about what's best for you individually, well, it's best for you to just leave the bottle of water. Um, but, uh, you know, you can start to think about how this might play out if everyone uh, had the same attitude about this, which is, you know, every time we think about, um, you know, whether I should recycle my bottle of water or not, I just leave it where it is pretty soon, you know, Mount Royal is going to be covered with, uh, with garbage and now it's not going to be enjoyable for anyone. So the next time you go to Mount Royal to hang out in the sun on its slopes, you're going to be sitting on a big pile of garbage. And so it's going to look bad. It's going to smell bad. And certainly nobody would have chosen this outcome uh, for our group to have Mount Royal covered in garbage. And uh, this idea really, you know, highlights sort of a fundamental tension that, that we face as a society, which is in order for our society to function well, in order for us to have good outcomes as a group, it really does require some investment by each individual. That is to take on uh, small costs like throwing away your garbage, even if you have to walk a few, you know, meters to do so uh, in order to avoid, you know, a situation that's bad for everyone. So then why do people, you know, I guess the next step would be because if, if it is costly and if people is it, would prefer to throw their bottled water, you know, without having to go all the way to the recycling bin, why do they do it? Well, so I, I think that, um, you know, we have a social norm that says, you know, when you have trash, throw it in the garbage can. And, you know, this is a social norm that's reinforced to everyone from an early age, right? That says, you know, you know, when you have garbage, put it in the garbage can. And, you know, we put garbage cans in relatively convenient places to help facilitate this, right? Also to lower the cost. And that, that seems to account for I some of it. I think you're right. That was a dumb question. I think, I think what I was trying to get at is, uh, is, is obviously there's something more than than just acting according to our own what's best for us and in, in a very selfish way. And I think that's how society in society we figured out ways to to make people aware of of their actions to others, not just themselves. And I think social norms is one. It's just it's just a 
something you do. You don't even think about it too hard. It's not something you have to do. It's, it's ingrained in your values. And it could also be, you know, this whole, uh, if I, if everybody did like me, it would be trash and all this kind of conscient, conscient, I don't know how you say it in English, conscient uh, behavior. But, um, but then that's actually the thing, right? When, pe- when, you, when you're in a place where there's already a little bit of trash, it makes it so much harder for you to want to just abide by the rule and say, look, I'm going to stick to my guns and actually throw the stuff in the trash because, because not, not everybody has before me and it pisses me off that I'm playing along with the social rule and not everybody is. Well, absolutely. So I have a, an excellent example of that situation. Uh, where I did my, uh, my doctorate was at UBC. And where the uh, old Department of Economics was at UBC was, you know, a fair distance from the nearest uh, coffee shop. So it was probably about, you know, 800 meters or so, which is a long distance for a university campus, especially when you're a graduate student who needs coffee. Uh, And um, in between the department and the coffee shop was this uh, grass field that had just been planted. Uh, They had torn down a building, they replaced it with a nice pristine grass field. And, you know, for a while they had a fence around it when they were growing the grass. And then as soon as the grass was finished, they got rid of the fence. And it was the path of least resistance Mm -hmm. between the building that I was in and the coffee shop. And so what started to happen. I can imagine the trail that was. Exactly. So at first I knew what was going to happen if everybody started walking through the middle of the grass, right? It would eventually turn into a dirt trail through the middle of the grass. It would become an eyesore. And so at the beginning, I said, I don't want to participate in this. Everyone else can walk on the grass. Mm. I'm going to go around. It's going to cost me five meters or whatever. But, you know, I want this grass to be here. It's nice. Um, I'm not going to walk through it. But after six months of everybody walking through the middle of the grass, now there's a big muddy patch running through it. I said, you know what? Forget it. Like, I did my part. Now I'm just going to walk through it. And, you know, now this... It's got a, you know, this thing is permanent, right? This, this, you know, muddy path. No life can come back out of this. No, no, exactly. Of course. Right. And and so this is a good example, right? That, that, you know, if you start with a good norm, right. Of people, you know, uh, taking on these very small costs for the benefit of, you know, everyone or, uh, or the the group as a whole, uh, then maybe they can be maintained. But as soon as, you know, some people start to to cheat on this stuff. Other people look and they go, well, you know, how come I'm, you know, the fool walking around the grass and everyone else is just destroying it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to do this too. And so I think this is an important point is that, you know, to the extent that we, you know, want to have good outcomes like clean parks and, you know, pristine patches of grass, you know, it's important that there exists some kind of mechanism uh, in society that helps us maintain, you know, these norms or maintain this, you know, good outcome, even though, you know, individuals mm-hmm. have an incentive uh, to take advantage. That's right. And that's the case for, you know, for littering, for this. But, you know, we talk about climate change and then just pollution in general. You know, if you don't have a, an authority like the government that says that this is the new rule, you have to, it's going to be costly for you to, to pollute, then it's very likely that firms, you know, looking mostly at the bottom line, firms are not going to take into account the, the damage that they do to the environment. And so that's, that's one way of of trying to, to fix this environmental issue. It's like the COP21 uh, in Paris, where there were the, all the countries in the world like, agreeing, like, yes, we should do something about the, the climate change. And uh, yeah, but, like, I mean, they didn't have to do anything. That's right. So the COP, you know, the, this whole uh, this Paris agreement, don't get me started on this, but I mean, up until the Paris agreement, they were agreeing every year to meet the next year. I mean, that was kind of the, the thing. But now with the agreement, they agreed to do something but even though it was a non-binding agreement so it wouldn't have to so you know it's um, 
a lot of environmental economists are pretty pessimistic about about the, the results of the Paris Agreement. But hey, I guess it's better than nothing, I suppose. I suppose, but I mean, I think that you know, as economists, you know, we see uh, the the danger of this or the fr- fragility of it really clearly. You know, mm-hmm. when we talked earlier on about you know, you know, what is it that's cool about studying economics or talking about economics? One of it is. One of those things that I said is I think it helps you understand the world a little better. For sure. And, you know, you know, sometimes it does make you seem cynical, but I think in the situation with this Paris Agreement, uh, that, you know, cynicism is kind of well-founded because we know that an agreement that's not binding, where individuals are being, you know, are supposed to take on, you know, in fact, relatively large costs mm-hmm. uh, for the benefit of everyone else, creates a situation where everyone has an incentive to cheat. That's right. And then all of a sudden, you know, one person cheats and, you know, uh, country X says, well, country Y isn't playing by the rules. So now I'm not going to do it anymore. And pretty soon we're back in the same situation. And so I, I think that, you know, one of these things that I really value about, you know, having studied economics the way that I have is a better understanding of why it's not likely that this would be uh, good enough. And some, you know, real uh, rules with bite uh, perhaps would be required. There's a call, there's a call, there's a call for you. There's a call on the phone for you. Hey guys, this is a great podcast and I've been enjoying it. I was wondering if you can revisit your discussion from one of your earlier episodes on monopoly power of US tech firms. Is there anything going on in the industrial organization literature regarding these issues? I think the case for breaking up Amazon is pretty clear, but I am curious if there are any logical arguments against breaking up these tech monopolies. Thank you. Thank you, Azgur, for your question. It's it's always, you know, it's a tough one because... So obviously, monopolies have uh, there's there's this notion that you know a monopoly is going to be detrimental to consumers, and so that's something we've talked about before. But when you talk about tech industry, which is your your topic here, it's uh, there's always these these critical mass effects where when one company becomes bigger than the others, then it attracts even more con- customers, and then it becomes it becomes huge. And Amazon, the example that you you um, you mentioned, I think you mentioned it, uh, knowing that it, ha- it does have two really distinct, um, distinct, uh, I guess, modes of operation. You know, there's the, the retailer Amazon, and then there's also the Amazon Web Services, which is the uh, the service that basically rents out servers to a whole bunch of users. It could be uh, companies, could be universities, and so on. And and this is and and both both the retailing side and the uh, and the server side is uh, is very much uh, a leader in uh, in its own uh, its own industry. So I'll admit that I'm not super familiar with their uh, server business. So um, it's easier for me to think more about their their retail business. And I think that one of the things that I find strange about this is thinking of Amazon as a tech company. Um, I, I don't really think of Amazon as a tech company. I think of Amazon as a retailer whose store happens to be virtual. Um, and, you know, ultimately, the just like other types of retailers, one of the things that they face are all sorts of logistical issues about, you know, how to uh, move things around from buyers to sellers, whether it's, you know, them selling directly to you or linking you with uh, other types of uh, sellers in their marketplace. And they've developed this massive logistical system, this massive network for uh, delivering uh, these goods uh, that I think is quite clear, uh, quite clearly benefiting from economies of scale. 
And so if you want to think about Amazon from the perspective of a, a natural monopoly, um, you know, breaking them up may have some positive consequences in terms of uh, the effect of pricing, but it certainly would have some negative consequences in terms of the network externalities. Um, because, you know, if you had to have, you know, independent, you know, other firms, uh, or I guess you could, you know, force Amazon to sell off pieces of itself, um, but presumably it's easier to centrally coordinate this operation than to have uh, multiple uh, operations trying to do the same thing, uh, especially given how much Amazon's uh, logistical network has evolved from, you know, using um, carriers like the United States Postal Service or Canada Post um, into, you know, creating their own um, internal uh, delivery uh, system or, or logistical system. So I, I just think that, you know, this, they might have the most efficient way to get products to and from uh, people. And if we're going to break them up, we have to think about the consequences in terms of the cost of maintaining that kind of system. Yeah, well, uh, so there's two things I would say in terms of the cost. And uh, we talked about the cost to the health and the mental health of employees in, in earlier topics. And I think uh, and this is not new. This has been a has been called out the fact that you know employees in warehouses have to piss in buckets so that they can really make the the targets that they have to make and uh, and that's that cannot be dis, uh, dissociated from the fact that Jeff Bezos is probably one of the richest people on earth right now or pretty close and uh, and and earns how many I don't know how many hundreds of times more than uh, than its its employees who have to piss in buckets so I think this is a uh, we can talk about the efficiency of an of a of a monopoly in this case, as far as the uh, delivery of service, uh, of, of the delivery of, uh, of items is concerned. But I think uh, we can't really think of this in isolation from the whole, uh, from, from the whole uh, internal workings and the, and the inequalities and the, uh, and the working conditions of, uh, of the employees. I'm sorry, you know, I don't mean to interrupt, but you know, they're not a monopsony you know, they are hiring people from a, a greater labor market. And so if you split them up, it's not going to have any effect on uh, worker conditions. And I mean, certainly anyone who's been listening to this podcast knows where I stand when it comes to uh, worker conditions. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously that's something we'd like to improve, but it seems orthogonal to this question here. Um, so I would love to see any company that's doing this, you know, create better working conditions. Um, but I just think that, you know, given the system that we have at the moment, right, if you split Amazon into 10 different companies, it wouldn't affect the working conditions of the people's people in those companies. Um, so I, I, just, I don't know, like I said, it seems orthogonal to me, but, but if I'm wrong, you know, I, I'll certainly would be interested. Well, but I, I think the, I think the working conditions are even more appalling given, given the wealth accumulated by its single owner. I think that's, that's, I think that's the, uh, that's what makes it more repugnant, uh, I would say, and and I'm not saying that everything else is always, uh, you know, in, in other that it would be much better in other places, but at least the um, the distinction, or not the distinction, but the the gradient, the delta between how much uh, people earn in, within the company would probably be much less. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I certainly find it repugnant, um, and uh, you know, I would certainly be in favor of anything that would close that gap. Uh, I just worry that, you know, splitting up the company is not necessarily the way uh, to accomplish that. Um, but uh, if it would, if it would, I guess I'm okay with that. Um, but ultimately, you know, my concern is how do we bring up the standards 
uh, for all of the employees. So I wouldn't be as concerned with Jeff Bezos's wealth if it wasn't to some extent at the expense of you know these employees who lack a better outside option. So I guess in a way, and I'm kind of speaking outside of my own role here, but I guess in a way the uh, the fact that it's so visible, that it's so uh, such a stark contrast, is actually a pretty good thing if you want to get laws moving towards uh, better conditions for workers, right? Because it's even more blatant that something wrong is happening. Well, and, and actually, I am going to you know completely uh, talk out of my. Uh, I don't know what words we're allowed to use here. Talk out of my butt here. Um, so I saw a, a somewhere, someone has passed a tax um, on um, executive compensation if the spread between the executive compensation and the average compensation is large enough. So the tax only kicks in if there's a huge disparity. Um, and it's a very small tax. I mean, I think it was, you know, 1% or 0.1%. So it's a tiny tax. But again, it's not based on the absolute amount being earned by the executive. It's based on the inequity. Um, no, is it inequity? Inequality in this case, rather, uh, between the compensation for the average employee and the executive. And so this is an interesting policy that is geared at reducing that spread. But I don't know that it necessarily reduces the spread you know, in the direction that I would like, because you, of course, you could just pay out more dividends to shareholders um, instead of making that CEO compensation doesn't benefit the average worker whatsoever. But it is interesting that I saw that policy. It would be nice if I remembered where this thing happened. Um, so I apologize for that. But it did happen. I swear I saw it somewhere. Well, good, good. So I guess we're not answering this girl's question uh, I, I, <laughs> about, about breaking up monopolies. I I, I frankly, I, I don't know what the answer is here. I, I think there's uh, there's arguments going both ways. The efficiency argument in, in what you're saying, Lanny, is that is that it's just so much more efficient to be using Amazon. The problem is that, again, and I keep bringing back this back to other issues like are they really paying their taxes? Are really, you know, which are orthogonal again to the to the question at hand. But it's somehow it's hard to it's hard to separate. Because if, if 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 that's what it takes to become a monopolist, if you have to dodge the rules, if you have to, you know, exploit your workers uh, as much as you can, then maybe there's a case for not allowing companies to become so big. I don't know. Well, and and also the the political economy consequences, where you have this individual who has so much money, and in the United States, you uh, have no limits on uh, contributions to. Um, political parties. And so, you know, if Jeff Bezos uh, wants to, you know, have some influence in the election, right, uh, he can have a big influence because of how much wealth he's personally uh, accumulated. And this is not the way we want, you know, democracy to work with one individual having a much bigger voice, although technically it is the law in the United States at the moment. Um, and so I, I think, you know, that is one thing where this issue, right, that you mentioned, um, about you know the the big spread between the average worker and you know the CEO um, actually does impact uh, or is driven by the fact that it's a monopoly um, and does have consequences for society at large. Um, so you know maybe that would be a good argument, just not creating situations where people can acquire so much wealth that they become so much more influential well, than other people. Yeah, but I think I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that the rules of American democracy are broken and that you should not have these unlimited amounts to uh, of contribution i mean that's that, that that's where i would fix the thing first yeah. but 
So, so on this topic, you know, and it's certainly off topic, but related, I have been listening to a podcast recently called uh, More Perfect. Uh, and it's about the Supreme Court in the United States. And it talks about this ruling. So this is Citizens United from 2010, which allowed, uh, which basically removed the limits on uh, corporate donations to political parties. And a lot of people have said exactly what you said, which is that it destroyed the American uh, political process. Um, yet, you know, the Supreme Court was very clear in why this was the right legal decision. And it's now incumbent upon, uh, the, upon Congress to make an amendment to the Constitution uh, that would address this. Um, so it'll be very difficult to get rid of this, um, unfortunately. Okay, well, I, I mean, I, I'm a U.S. citizen, so I feel like I can say these things. But I mean, it's going to be difficult to undo a lot of the mess that is that is that has been created and that is going on right now. But I'm, I'm, if we, I, what I'm thinking, what I'm saying is that... Uh, this political economy problem is not so much one that's due to the monopolist or to having somebody has having a lot of wealth, but it's mostly due to the fact that there's unfortunately this connection between wealth and political power that the U.S. allows more than in other countries. We know it exists in other countries as well. I'm not naive here, but but I think that uh, that communication between the two worlds is uh, is a, is an issue. Right. Well, especially. Since, you know, with the way the political process is set out, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos has the ability to influence the rules of the game in his favor. Um, and so we don't need all of this happening at once. I mean, maybe we can live with a monopoly, but maybe not a monopoly that gets to set its own rules. Well, thanks, Isgur, for your question. I hope uh, I hope we answered it to your satisfaction and I appreciate you listening to us. And, uh, and if you have more, feel free. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, see you next week. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thing, but... We sent it on the anchor. Like, oh, okay. You oh, might find uh... that there's 300 of them if, you, if you've never checked those. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we have all the messages. <laughs>